First, thank you for listening. Be sure to like and give us a share. The network is intended to be a modern extension of the Negro Motorist Green Book created by Victor Hugo Green in the form of a podcast. The Atlantic Magazine called the Green Book an invaluable resource to black people living in and traveling through America. We are attempting to do the same create an invaluable resource for black people living in and traveling literally and figuratively through America. Welcome to the network. We hope you like it here. Today's guest is Kyle Sykes. You can find him on Facebook, Kyle Sykes. Look for him on Instagram at Beard and Boots. And then you can also find him on Twitter at Gorilla in the MST. You're going to enjoy today's guest. He's a CDL truck driving engineer with Ghetto Ears, Mississippi State graduate. Welcome, biochemical engineer Kyle Sykes. All right. So my name is Kyle Sykes. Uh, I am an engineer by education, uh, graduated from Mississippi State University with a biological engineering degree, environmental emphasis. By trade, I am, I guess you would consider an environmental compliance officer uh, for, and my track record, I've worked in private, I've worked in the public sector, and now I'm back in the private. So I've actually been on both sides of the regulations. So, I mean, you know, I've had a uh, very interesting uh, journey to get to this point. Well, listen, let's, let's jump right into it. Uh, weave your journey for us. Tell us what what has led you to where you are right now. All right. So before I start weaving my journey, because if I don't do this, this is definitely not going to get how I got to where I am. Before okay. I do any presentations or do anything, I always start with a bad joke. Got to. All right, let's, let's go. It's a ritual. So this one is one of my favorites. So uh, it was parent take your child to work day. And so father took his daughter to work with him and she gets to work and she's all excited. But as the day goes by, she's starting to get a little bit more upset. And then she just starts crying and she's crying and she's crying. And so his coworker comes out and they're trying to console her. His manager comes out, she's trying to console her. The head of HR comes out, they're trying to console her. And so finally somebody's like, little girl, what's wrong? And she looks at her dad and say, daddy, where are all the clowns you say you work with? <laughs> oh, man. Hey, appreciate that. Thank you for starting us off with a bad joke. We appreciate it. Got to. Hey, and, and I do this at every, <laughs> I do this everywhere. At all my presentations, I don't care who in the room, I always start off with a bad joke. Got to. Hey, you got to break the, the ice. You got, got to. to break the ice. All right, oh, so, all right, so let me weave my journey. First off, man, I'd like to say that, man, I am where I am um, because of the people who came before me. So, you know, even though I never met my grandfathers, either one, uh, both of my grandmothers are gone. Uh, lost my last one this year, and uh, uh, this previous year. Uh, lost my father in 2012, so it's been eight years now. And... Um, I stand on the shoulders of those that came before me. And even though I may not be in the place that I want to be, I mean, I do recognize that I've had a journey and that's the mm-hmm. most important part. And so, you know, I'll start off a group in Vicksburg, Mississippi, product of the Vicksburg one school district, uh, public education system. You know, man, I grew up in, uh, this, uh, I, I want to call it a magical place, man. 1612. I mean, uh, 1612 Military Avenue, you know, it was always full of family, full of friends. Um, And, you know, looking back, you know, my grandmother did not live in the best of neighborhoods, but you never really knew that because of the love that was always there. And even though I didn't grow up in my grandmother's house, I mean, I went there every day. So, I mean, might as well, you know, the only thing I did in my house was lay down. Um, So... (laughs) So, you know, growing up um, on 1612, uh, for people from Vicksburg, known as the bottom, um, man, I had I had 
plenty of adventures. Things that I saw that I would look back later on and be like, oh, that's what that was. Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> plenty the, of that happened. Yeah, plenty the, of that the, happened. The things that you realize when you're older about, oh, the, oh, the bottom. This is yeah. what happens in the bottom. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, you get normalized to it, but I had such a family structure around that, you know, that kind of stuff just went over my head. And I didn't really understood what I was seeing until I would see it again, you know, older. And I'm like, oh, okay. So that is what that was. It was just normal when you was little because, you know, yeah, okay, you see this. I mean, I, I saw crack when I was like nine. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know what it was. I thought somebody has pebbles in their hand. You know what I'm saying? I see, yeah, I see yeah. it again later on, and it's like, oh, oh, okay. I get it. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I grew up with a bunch of family. Grew up with a, um, people would always come to grandma's house to shoot ball, to do all this other stuff, because it was kind of a safe haven. You know, yeah. We, yeah. We, we just kind of, you know, everybody kind of knew that none of the foolishness that went on around was going on here. And so, um, you know, grew up in a, a, a semi-sheltered environment. And um, I didn't realize the blessings that I, were, that I was getting growing up. Mm -hmm. the, ma the mayor of Vicksburg lived down the street from my grandma, like, like literally walking distance. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he knew who I was. This is the mayor of Vicksburg. How, how many people said they had access to the actual mayor who actually lives in a not-so-desired part of the city? And so, you know, that type of thing, that type of influence, the people that my aunts knew um, growing up, you know, who my aunts and uncles were growing up, you know, to yeah. me, you know, it's just my aunts and uncles, but, you know, other people have name recognition with them. So, um, you know, you come from that environment, you know, and then, you know, I was... Fortunate, I grew up in a, a household with my father. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he he was there to, if I got a good overview from 1612 and all my other family, my dad was there for the day-to-day -day things, you know, teaching me why I needed to be able to do certain stuff, you know, teaching me why it's important that I know this or why it's important that I know that, and, you know, giving me the hard lessons mm -hmm. that you need, mm -hmm. for, you know, from a young from, to become from a young boy to become a young man to become a grown man and how to yeah. translate and then he also helped me with helping me translate these lessons uh so that when i become older i can use the fundamentals of them and then use them into a new situation you know what i'm saying yeah so dads usually have these sayings that they're sticklers for did your dad have any particular sayings or quotes that you heard often? Oh, yeah. Uh, pay the cost to be the boss. You know, um, and um, his other one was uh, luck is when opportunity meets preparation. And uh, so... Yeah, that's one of my and favorites. So, and I didn't understand what he meant by that until I got older, but that's a lot of the things that your dad would drop off on you. You know, he'll drop you off something and you'll be like, man, it'll do wild. And then you get older and you'll be like, oh, oh no, no, I'll I, I just wasn't ready for that. I wasn't ready for it. Planting those seeds. Yeah, and so, like, the, the pay the cost to be the boss, uh, his mentality on that was, you can mess up, and it's okay to mess up, but you're going to have to pay the cost. You, you want to get there and be bad? Go ahead and be bad. But you know there's going to be something that come around the corner behind it. Are you ready for it? Yeah. And so he always yeah. made me think about my decisions. Was I ready to pay the cost for whatever I was doing? And a lot of times I'm like, nah, I'm straight. I'm good. And, and that kept me out of a lot of trouble right there. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, growing up, you know, I um, went through uh, elementary school, went to junior high, got to high school, still have no clue what I want to do in life. I'm just out here playing ball, you know what I'm saying, <laughs> just out here living my life, trying to get decent grades, get, uh, you know what I'm saying, talking to girls, got a girlfriend, you know, just kind of living life. And um, how I kind of got on my start to kind of what I wanted to do um, as far as a profession was, it was around, uh, I think it was around the July 4th holiday. 
and I probably was in high school. And uh, I saw my dad go to work, and he came home. And that was probably maybe like, like that Friday. And uh, July 4th was like that Monday. And then my dad didn't go to work Monday, but my mom did because my mom always worked in retail. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait a minute. Why dad ain't going to work? I was like, Dad, where you going to work? He said, oh, so I'm off. Son. What you talking about? I was like, oh. He said, yeah, I got a holiday for this. And I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's... <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. This, this, I don't know what you do, but this is the path I want to be on. And I mean, he used to wear like, you know, khakis and polo shirt, you know, has little boots on or whatever. And so I'm like, okay, all right. I don't know what this is, but he gets to dress up every day. And he off on holidays. He never works the weekends. Uh, this type of life I'm going to live. Okay, all right. Figure yeah, this out. Yeah. Figure this out. So I kind of started questioning him. Like, hey, man, hey, what you do? So he took me to his job. And I swear to God, all he doing was busting bricks all day. He, uh, I, I mean, he had like this little machine. put the bricks in there. They bust. Bam. He write down something on a piece of paper. I was like, yo, you literally do this all day. He was like, yeah, that's what I do all day. I said, okay. So. Uh, go back to school. I think it was like uh, we had some sort of class, and it was telling you, you know, what did your parents do? I said, oh, my dad was bricks all day. All day is all he do. <laughs> I had no clue. It wasn't until I got into college and started taking um, mechanics of materials that I understood that my dad was doing tensile and tension strength tests on different composite materials, and he was getting the the uh, breaking point of these materials and all this I didn't realize it. So four right. years later, I'm calling right. him and I'm like, hey, so this is what you was doing? Okay, this makes a lot more sense now. Because I thought I was busting bricks all day. So um, I graduate high school. I go to Northeast Louisiana University for a year because I think I want to be an occupational therapist. Okay. I get there and it's a train wreck. Did not enjoy it. Hated that school. Um, said I got to get out of here. Gotta go. Can't do this. It's not gonna four years is not gonna happen here. Not gonna do it. Yeah. So Mississippi State University actually was one of the first schools that I knew of that had uh online admissions at that time. We talk you're talking like 1999, 2000. So this is yeah. this is brand new. That's new. That that's a new <laughs> thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's new. So uh, had a, had my uh my ex-girlfriend up there at the time, so I'm I'm getting her to walk me through the process because, you know, I mean, I didn't grow up in, in my house, so I'm still trying to figure all this out, freshman in college. So right. she walked so, me through the process. Yeah, go ahead. I used, I used the internet for the first time in 1995, and that's because they had it in the computer lab in the dorm, you know. So, so we had it at school, but, you know, it's different growing up with it when you use it every day. We would use right. it in we would use it at school for two or three class sessions. And then we don't use the internet for another three to four weeks, two months. And so whatever I learned is gone. So I had to relearn all this stuff. So my dad was uh, one of these people that if you wanted something from him, you need to kind of lay out your plan. And so I knew when I go to my dad and said, Hey, not only do I want to change my major, but I, I want to leave whole schools. I want to leave this whole state. I want to go back to where, you know, that's where I want to go. So when I go to him, I have my admissions. I have my housing. I have everything lined up. I said, Dad, I want to transfer to Mississippi State. Here goes everything. This is all the work I've done on the front end. I just need you to pay for it. <laughs> so, yeah. And so he was like, all right. He said, okay. He said, well, you know, I got one rule. You get one major change. You get one uh, transfer. You, you're knocking them out in one, two. Okay, fine. Cool. Fine with it. So went up there, uh, got an engineer. And I will tell you, the hardest thing I have ever done was graduate from engineering school. Not pledging. Not a lot of different things. The hardest thing I have ever done was go up to Mississippi State mm-hmm. and graduate from engineering school. Talk about that. Man, the challenges that come with going to a PWI as a, mm-hmm. as a person of color and going into spaces where you are one, two, three of you, yeah, go into these spaces and not only break whatever stereotype these people have, but learn and try to excel. It was, it was difficult. 
it it was it, you know it it was a shock to me because my high school was pretty diverse. I think we were like almost fifty fifty, and oh. uh, Northeast wasn't actually that bad. And to be honest, Mississippi State is not that bad. Mississippi State has the highest percentage of black students in the SEC. I think we're almost at like nineteen percent. So I mean, you're talking about almost one out of five people is black on campus. Okay. So, but when you start getting off into certain majors. Yeah, you don't see that 19%. And yeah. so when I first got in engineering school, I was in there with a lot of people that um, I knew, people from my hometown. But when you start getting into your junior classes, your senior classes, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot a lot of people not already went to the, they didn't already died and went to business school. And I was struggling, man. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, did, I didn't know if I had it in me. And that was one of the few times in life that I didn't know if my work ethic would, alone would get me through, because okay. it, it took some. It took some prayer. It took some prayer. It took. It took a lot of fortitude, strength, mm-hmm. um, to get through that. I mean, a lot of people. When I look back at my time at Mississippi State, my happy times are hanging out with my line brothers, hanging out. You know what I'm saying? When I think about school, that is a that's like a dark memory. Like it's it, it was tough. It so was let tough. me let let me ask you a couple of questions. One, so you you said you're a, a product of the Vicksburg Warren School District. Yes. Coming from Vicksburg, Mississippi, the Vicksburg Warren School District, did you feel that you were prepared academically to compete in engineering school? So. I'll say this, if I knew in high school that I wanted to be an engineer, then I would have, because my high school had a lot of, um, I got all the way up to advanced algebra, but I mean, they had pre-calculus, they had, you know, they had Mm -hmm. um, calculus that would have translated into a credit in college. Like they had those upper level courses, but I didn't know that I wanted to be an engineer. So, you know, I'm kind of just taking whatever I need to graduate and whatever interests me at that time. Right. And so, um, and then I thought I was going to play ball in college. And so, you know, I was just kind of trying to just maneuver whatever I was going to do. And so um, if I had, if I had done, if I had known, I would have been able to do and be more prepared, but, you know, I wasn't necessarily prepared as much as I would have been, but only because I didn't know. And, okay. and, and that's, and that's one of the things that, um, going forward, like now I try to prepare people, you know what I'm saying? I try to let them know, Hey man, these are the things you're going to run into because I didn't know. And I don't want, I don't want people to have to go through that same thing that I went through of just not knowing. Right. So why biological engineering? So when I got to state, I thought that um, I still want to go to med school. And so biological engineering, a lot of people leave there and go to med school. So I still I still thought I wanted to do occupational therapy. So I was going to get this engineering degree and then go back to occupational therapy. Well, after my first year, and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm done. This is, this is literally going to use all my brain power. I'm not going to uh, go to med school after this. So <laughs> I switched over. So... <laughs> So instead of switching my whole major, um, they had different tracks. And so I got on the environmental emphasis track in biological engineering. And I'm just kind of lucky that I'm still working in that field. Okay. Okay. So I graduated well. And while at state, I ended up pledging. Um, And like I said, uh, I met some lifelong friends in that process. What fraternity are you in? Uh, the Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, established in 1906 at Ithaca, New York, Cornell University. Okay, thank you. Thank you for sharing I play that. As, I play as the Kappa Beta chapter. What so, year? Uh, 2002 spring. Okay. So, I pledged, uh, met my wife there, um, got a lot of, uh, you know, me, me, me and a lot of my LBs right now are still tough. I mean, these are the guys that, I mean, we still got a group chat, everything. So, you know, we, we still hanging in that stuff. Um, so I pledged, met my wife there, graduated in 2004. So 2004, do not have a job. Do not have a job. I have to move back home. It's tough. 
Yeah. I moved. I, I moved back home. I have no car because my car um, broke on me uh, the semester before I graduated. I have no money because I have no job, and um, I am now living at, back at home five and a half years later um, after I moved out. So I'm back at home with my mom and my dad, and I am struggling because I can't find anything, cannot find anything. Um, I, um, and my dad doesn't understand that at this point, 2004, everything's online. So you don't go out looking for a job. You, you, you essentially, you're applying. Right. You're applying for jobs. Only, yeah. It looks, yeah. it looks different. Things are looking he, different. He doesn't understand that. And so I'm trying to explain it to him. And he thinks I'm being lazy. I call my, I call my line brother. He was living in Memphis. And I was like, yo, hey man, are y'all hiring? I need something. And he was like, yeah, we, we about to bring in a new class, but I don't really think you want it. I said, look, man, I don't care. I got to get out of here. I have to go. And he was like, I'll pass your name up. So I get a call, come up for an interview. So I didn't notice at the time this was such a blessing. Because mm -hmm. not only was this a job, but it was actually getting me into my field. And so um, I go up there for the um, job. And let me tell you my mindset. I literally didn't care what they were doing. I was gonna, I was gonna go in here. I was gonna kill this interview. I'm gonna get the job. I'm gonna get out of here. Yeah. So I get up there, and while they are showing me around the facility, a drum explodes, and I'm not phased. I'm not phased because I gotta have it. Gotta have it. Right. Can't can't go back home. Cannot do it. Drum explodes. He was like, "Oh, uh, this is not normal." I said, "It's okay. So it's all right." Yeah, Bo Bomani Jones refers to that is as a. Uh, I'm from a place called Can't Go Back. C cannot, cannot. Can't go back. Cannot. Th no those, guys don't those guys don't want to see me. I don't want to see them. Drum so, explodes. <laughs> don't matter. Can't go back. Don't matter. Can't go back. Can't go back. So I get home. My dad, and you know, you you, you know my dad. He was asking me questions, and I mm -hmm. don't have a million answers. But I told him, I said, I don't care. I'm gone. So they called me. They offered me the job, yeah. eleven fifty an hour. I told them, "Good, I'm there. I'm coming. <laughs> yeah. I am coming." So my line brother, and you know, man, I I I, I give him all the props in the world, man. My line brother told me, "Say, bro, hey, you move up here. I ain't charge you nothing. Try to get on your feet." I had to I had to make him take a hundred dollars on the on the electricity bill because I was all sitting it by standing. I had to make him yeah. take a hundred dollars. Yeah. He let me stay there six months rent free. And so this is your me. this is your first job out of Mississippi State working in Memphis. Working in Memphis. And so mm -hmm. as part of his job was I had to I had to have a CDL. So your boy was out here a CDL truck driver engineer. Yes sir. Had had a class yeah. B with with air brakes. Oh yes. I was out there. Okay. Okay. This. Stick shifting it up. Oh yes. Um, so I'm doing that and I got so much experience though doing that. I got so much experience. Um one of the things that I got to do that was so cool was I got to work on Katrina three weeks after Katrina. So I'm okay. down there. I, I'm I'm down there. Before the telethons, I'm down there before Kanye telling everybody that, jo that George Bush don't like black people. Like I'm, I'm, I'm in there. I'm in there. As soon as they open up New Orleans, they send us down there. You go to you go to East New Orleans, and even two years afterwards, uh, two years after I got married, so 2010, I took my wife down there, and I'm still showing her neighborhood in East New Orleans, but they still got the X's on the doors, you know, because and the X's signified uh, that this house has been checked if they found the body and um, something else. And so they would have these numbers on it. And mm -hmm. uh, in the and at the bottom part of the X is if they had a number, that mean they found the body. Oh, wow. And so, yeah. So, you know, what? we going out through New Orleans seeing all this stuff. And, I mean, it was a couple of times we uh, we tried to go somewhere and, you know, um, it was still a little flooded, so we couldn't get through the – so, like, this, these type of stuff I'm seeing, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm seeing, I'm seeing the aftermath of Katrina, like in real time. Yeah, 
Yeah. And this nice. is when, so when you went to school and got your degree in biological engineering, could you imagine that this is where no. you're going to end up? No, no. I thought I was going to have an office job, like all my partners, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm doing spreadsheets, you know what I'm saying? Whatever else. Um, crunching numbers. I, you know, I thought maybe I had to go in the field a little bit, but no, I was, I was the field. I was the field. Wow. So, um, I know you're down there and you're, you're volunteering immediately after the storm. Uh, there, there's a time where you got this, this, this red t-shirt on with a, with a white cross. That so red search you. and rescue. So let me tell you about this. So, all right, man, I'm back. I, I, I got back on one of my runs. I'm back in Memphis. And so uh, my line brother, I think he was out of town. And his girlfriend at the time, or his ex, I can't remember if they were broke up, whatever. She hit me up and she was like, yo, um, it's a bunch of uh, people up here from New Orleans at my church. Do you want to come volunteer? And I was like, yeah, cool. Um, I'm just, I'm at the crib. Just come scoop me up or whatever. So she comes scoop me up. And... I'm not paying attention because I, you know, I had just put on some clothes or whatever. And I promise you, man, sometimes my life is a real life Steinfeld show. Uh, so we get to the church and, you know, I'm, I'm diving in, I'm helping. And so she finally pulls me to the side and she was like, why did you wear that shirt? And I was like, what are you talking about? And I looked down and I had this red and white shirt on with a cross on it. It looks, it looks like the red cross. And it says, search and rescue hot chicks division and i'm sitting up here helping these people <laughs> from new orleans who have just escaped uh a massive categoric five storm and i'm out here with a shirt that says search and rescue hot chicks division and i'm like man and were y'all at the church or you were, we were at the, the church? church we were at the church <laughs> i'm passing out bag lunches helping people get sleeping bags i'm doing all this stuff and i'm out here wilding on the low, didn't even recognize him. <laughs> so I stayed at this job for like almost three years. And by the time I got to the third year mark, man, I was burnt out. And cause I mean, we were going all the time. We were going all the time. And so this is how divine intervention works. So I go to this one job. I had been there several times before they got this new manager. And so I'll go down there. The previous manager would have everything uh, laid out. And so this dude didn't have nothing laid out. So we were having to go stop by stop to pick all this stuff up. Mm -hmm. And so while we're doing all this, he's talking to me. And I'm like, man, I don't want to talk to you. I'm ready to get back home. And so um, he was like, hey, so where'd you go to school at? And I was like, oh, I went to Mississippi State. He was like, really? I was like, yeah, I went to Mississippi State. He was like, what'd you get your degree in? I was a biological engineer. And so he stops and he's like, you got an engineering degree? I say, man, I look at it on the wall every night. Pretty sure I got it. No problem. He was like, uh, you ever thought about working at MDEQ? Now, let me tell you, I had wanted to work at MDEQ when I graduated, but they had a hiring freeze and they weren't hiring nobody. So I had to take what I get. Yeah. He said, hey, man, I just left DEQ. I, can, I know the head of HR pretty well. I can give her a call if you're interested. I say, no, you, you should do that. And what, what is Mississippi DEQ? What is that? So MDEQ, or Mississippi Department of Environmental Quality, is essentially the state organization that regulates all environmental regulations. Think of them as the state of Mississippi's EPA. I get a call. I don't even, next, the next week might be too long. I want to say it was the next day. I got a call the next day. Hey, just thought this, uh, so-and-so. He said that he met you, you know, you think you'd be a good candidate to bring an interview. Cool. So now I can't get a call back to, I didn't went down three weeks in a row and had three different interviews. And um, I get an interview with this guy and he was like, you know, he asked me about my experience. I was telling him about it. Yeah. And he, his boss comes in for literally like five minutes and was like, I like this parent. I think I'm going to recommend this. And walks out. And I'm like, I don't know what kind of show they're running in here, but whatever. So, <laughs> so I, get, I get hired. And um, when I tell you, I don't know if I ever have another boss that was as good as this guy. Like, I mean, I still keep in contact with him to this day. 
And um, so I get to DQ and I literally I hit the ground running. Um, I'm all over the place. I'm doing a lot of different things. I'm uh, he he is letting me spread my wings. He's letting me be a part of the the state um, legislative uh, committee for our organization. So I was going to the Capitol, listen to um, the different laws that were being passed and what was going to affect us. You know, interacting with lobbyists. I mean, I man, I met all type of powerful people in in this organization, and um, so he he pulled me to the side one day, and uh, we were in the meeting. Um, it was me, him, and a bunch of other people. And he was like, I mean, just just stay afterwards. And so I was like, uh, what's up? And he was like, hey, did you notice something? And I'm looking, and I, and, and I noticed that I'm the only person of color in here. Mm-hmm. And so I gave him another answer because I'm like, he clearly can't be talking about this. Yeah. And he was like, no, nah, for real, did you notice something? And I was like, I was the only black person in here? He was like, yeah. He said, man, I'm trying to set you up. It's a white guy. Yeah. It's a white yeah. guy. He said, man, I'm trying to set you up. He said, man, I think you got what it takes. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying That's to set you stuff. up. That's good and stuff. I never, I never forgot that. I never forgot uh-huh. that. Okay. And so Where, so where did you go from there? So, all right, I'm going to back up right quick, and I'll get you there. So my boss ended up um, getting a promotion. And uh, this is after we had um, worked together on a lot of different things and, you know, did the oil spill together. And, you know, that's that's uh-huh. a whole nother thing. And so my boss ended up leaving. And when he left, it's like the veil was pulled off of me. He kept a lot of different things from from me. And when he left, all the BS started flowing in. And. Okay. A, dr- a dream job that I had because I loved working there, but became a nightmare. So let me let me let me show you. Let me bring it back and show you how God worked. So um, 2012, uh, I was ahead on my work, you know, killing it. You know what I'm saying? Because uh, you know I'm trying to make my boss look good, so I'm doing my thing. And uh, he pulled me to the side. He was like, "Hey, look, one of the other branches need help, and you're really good at this." And so why don't you help them with this uh, permit? Because what I did at MDQ, I, I wrote environmental permits. Okay. And, and so um, this was a permit for a uh, power facility. Totally not in my wheelhouse. My my scope was more metal facilities. So you think Nissan, Toyota, any metal manufacturers, that's what I normally would write permits for. So a mm-hmm. power plant is something totally different. And so I get the power plant. And so while I'm writing this permit, and it's in development and draft, it gets bought. It gets bought by energy. So now I'm working with a whole different group of people. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and one of the people that I'm working with, we, we, I'm having to have a lot of interaction with her. So I kind of mentioned, uh, you know, I asked her where she works. She told me, I said, oh, my aunt works up there. And she's like, who's your aunt? I said, oh, Ruby Gibson. And she's like, Ruby, your aunt? I said, yeah, root mine. And so she was like, she told me she had a nephew that worked up there. I didn't realize that that was you. Uh-huh. So, so this is where the family come back in. And um, she was like, look, if you ever get tired of DQ, let me know. And, you know, we can, you know, see if anything's available. And so she shot me a couple jobs. But, you know, being honest, living in Mississippi, if you're not living on the coast, uh, outside of Memphis or Jackson, everything else is rural. And I ain't trying to be in the rural area. Not trying yeah. to do it. So she shot yeah. me a couple of jobs that was in rural areas. Then I didn't really want to do it. So after my boss leaves, I'm kind of just scrolling. Not really, you know, just kind of, you know, trying to figure things out. I went on a uh, trip with uh, some friends. And when I got back, I'm going through my emails. And it's an email from her saying, hey, we got a job opening in our uh, group. You, I think you should apply. Okay, look at it. I look at the salary. I'm like, oh, th- th- this ain't even this. I was questioning it because I was like six months shy of um, being vested with the state. But uh-huh. uh, I go tell my wife about it, and she was like, "Hey, nah, you you gonna apply? You gonna apply? They gonna tell they can tell you no, but you gonna apply." All right, fine. So I get in there. I don't know if a lot of you know this, 
But in 2007, I interviewed for a similar position in the Little Rock Group, and mm-hmm. I didn't get it. And I said I wasn't ready for it. I didn't know that then, but I knew that now. I said me going and working at MDEQ and getting the connects and the experience that I have allowed me to now come in and be successful in this position. And this was 2015. So I said, if you have another candidate that has waited over eight years to reapply for a similar position, which you are, you should hire them. And she told me later on, she said, after I said that, she was like, well, she was done. And so, and so that's kind of like how my life works. A lot of times things that I don't understand happen and then I can either recall that experience or call upon the experience for somebody else to show them why I'm the qualified candidate. Timing. I've learned that timing is everything. It is. It is. Timing is everything. Cause you, one thing that you mentioned was you didn't know it at the time, but you weren't ready for little rock. You know, it, you, you still needed to be working at MDEQ. I need to be seen. Prepared you for the, the, the job at Entergy. But I want to back up just one step. You mentioned something about an oil spill. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. What oil uh, spill was this and when was this? The, B, the BP oil spill of 2010. Okay. okay. Oh, two, yeah, 2010. Yes, sir. Uh, so my organization at MDQ, I, we were some of the first people on the ground when the oil spill happened, mm-hmm. uh, I was selected because of, uh, you know, I would say my, my reputation as a hard worker and, you know, I was well liked at DEQ. And so I was selected to work, um, initially as a cert responder. So a state emergency response teams responder. Mm-hmm. And so we would go down on rotations and we would stay a week at a time and get relieved. And we were patrolling the beaches. We were out, uh, Mississippi has some islands, just south of uh, in the Mississippi Sound, Barry Islands. And we mm-hmm. would be on boats going out to the islands. We'd be on helicopters going out into the Gulf. Some people would be on planes flying around. We were boots on the ground. I, I, I can say that I have probably walked every stretch of the beach in all three counties in the state of Mississippi over the, wow. over the f- probably four years that I was on that response. What Man, did that experience teach you? Or what did you learn from the experience? So I, I gathered beneficial, I mean, contacts that I could not pay for, I gathered there. Um, the experience, the how, how, how politics and government and environmental response works together, how money plays a big picture in all of it, mm-hmm. how um, as far as the um, citizens of Mississippi, how organizations are viewed. Um, from their eyes and how we view the citizens of Mississippi, you know, what it takes to, um, for a massive cleanup like this, mm-hmm. it, it, it was, man, I, it was, it was people from Norway at the BP oil spill that I met. You have people coming all the way from Norway with their expertise to come down here and help facilitate the cleanup. Um, you had inter, you had was interstate agencies working together along with the federal government. So you have people from Louisiana and Alabama and Mississippi, along with federal government working together, planning out logistics. I mean, I learned so much working and I, and I literally did every job that they had down there. I was on the uh, SCAT team, which is shoreline uh, coastal assessment team. I was a red room coordinator. When I was in that position, I had to, compile a report that went to the governor's desk every day. Um, like I said, I was on cert. I was, um, I worked with contractors as far as uh, being a liaison between MDQ and contractors. Man, mm-hmm. I literally did everything down there. That was some of the, probably the best experience that I've ever gotten. Okay. So now um, you kill the interview at Intergy. And so now you work at Entergy. Give us a, a just a brief synopsis of what you're doing at Entergy. All right. So um, up until May 31st, I was a, considered a field analyst. And so as a field analyst, you handle the day-to-day environmental compliance for a power generation site. 
And so I work at a power plant where I work at three different power plants at this time. I am making sure that there, we have these things called SIMS monitors, which is continuous emissions monitoring systems. Okay. I make sure that they're running properly. I make sure that the numbers, the numbers that they're taking in are accurate. Um, they send out these reports every day. I look at them. Um, I make sure that, um, you know, any maintenance or um, analyticals that we have to do gets done as far as environmental-wise. As far as, like, water discharge, we have these things called discharge monitoring reports. I have to make sure that they're completed and accurate and signed. Um, I have to make sure that any waste that we're uh, just leaving the site is compatible with what we're trying to do. And um, so I'm kind of a jack-of-all-trades in that old role. Okay. As of, okay. as of, as of May 31st, I, um, we had a retirement in our group and I interviewed and was selected to be the Mississippi air lead. And so in this role, I am the air lead for all the power plants in Mississippi that are, that are not nuclear. And so with this role, I'm making sure that we are, I'm doing kind of big picture things. So making sure that we, have our air permits, making sure that our air permits are not expiring, uh, doing our legwork to make sure we get our applications in on time, uh, doing a lot of big picture things with that. So when you say air permits, what, you know, for a guy like me who has no clue what that is, what what, right. what is that? So you've been driving down the road. You've seen a power plant before, right? Right. I used to all cut right, grass so, at one. That's my experience with power. Okay. Plant. All right. So they usually <laughs> got these, they used got these turbines, right? These big turbines that go way up in there and they'll have uh -huh. some sort of a uh, smoke coming out of it. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. So what I do is I make sure that the amount of smoke that's coming out of that stack is within the limit in our permit. Got it. Got it. Okay. So you have. 15 years of working in the environmental compliance arena, extensive experience. Tell us how you're using that experience to mentor younger people, especially young black people and people of color that are entering into the world of STEM. So I, when I was working at MDQ, um, Somebody asked me if I would like to speak to the image program that they were having at Tougaloo College and images high school students who are interested in STEM, so science, technology, engineering, math majors when they go to college. And I was like, cool, no problem. So I go there and I kind of speak to them about my, about my experiences in the STEM world and we had really good dialogue and one of the conversations, one of the questions they asked, I didn't answer, and it killed me after I didn't answer, well, what was the salary range mm -hmm. uh, coming out of college working in STEM? And I didn't answer that question because, you know, you beat it in your head, you know, you're not supposed to tell people your salary. I have come completely 180 on that. I, I believe that's the way that they keep us in a herd mentality, and if you don't know, then you don't know what to ask for, and they give you whatever they want. Right, so, right. So I went back, I think it was two years later, and I told them, I said, hey, before we start anything, before I tell you anything, y'all, some of y'all asked me what was my salary, and I did not answer that question. And I said, it's killed me for two years, and before, we, before this is what I make. Damn. And so um, I've always, every time I go and speak at different um groups, uh, especially about young, young kids who want to uh, major in STEM, I always, hey, guys, this is what you can make with just a bachelor. So what, what can I make with just a bachelor's degree in STEM or like, say, an engineering field? Coming out of school, I've seen, when I was coming out, and it's 2004, so it's probably, it could be a lot better, it could be a lot worse, depending on, you know, the economy. Um, coming out of school, I saw people making anywhere between 45 to 60. I did see somebody coming out of school making about 85 when I was there. 
you know, he was probably the outlier. He had like a 3.9. He went into the oil industry. I think he had co-op with them. So mm-hmm. he came out making 85, but that means it's possible. Yeah, yeah. That's good. That's, that's good information. That's good information. So did you ever have the opportunity to go back and speak at your alma mater? Yes, actually. So when I was working for Intergy, you know, I was asked to speak um, in regards to the Nesby group, which is the National Society of Black Engineers. And I went there and I, you know, I shared my experiences, but I also told them that I, you know, I was actually probably more happier, well, happier to be there than they were because I never thought that I would be in a position in my profession where I would be speaking to prospective students. And, you know, cause I had been in their seat, you know, I knew how hard I worked to get down here, but I never thought I would be recognized to be able to speak to students at my alma mater. These are the challenges that you're going to face. You know, yes, we're all having engineering degrees and, you know, but as for as a person of color, I said, your classroom is going to mirror your work environment. I said, there's going to be plenty of times where you're the only person that looks like you. There are going to be plenty of times where your voice is not going to be recognized because it's not coming out of a people who look like the person making a decision. And I was like, you know, those are the type of things that you have to work hard to um, get around and get through because yes, you've got the engineering degree. That's the first hurdle. Now here comes the rest of the world. Yeah. So what, what specific hurdles did you have to deal with, you know, in, in the workplace? You know, um, Angry black man stereotype. Um, people see me and don't think automatically that I have nothing in common with them. Um, mm-hmm. I was on an interview where I was told later on that I didn't get the job because I that the other person was a better fit. And I'm probably sure that it was more along the lines of not my experience because I had experience in exactly what they were looking for, but it was more along the lines of their comfort level. Yeah. Not mine. And so those are the type of things that you have to uh, fight against. You know, you got, you know, you tell us all the time, you got to be twice as good to get half as much. And, you know, even in 2020, that's, that's, that's an accurate statement. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Unfortunately. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, tell us what keeps you up at night. So what keeps me up at night is uh, not finding my, my, my passion. And so what I mean by that is, is that, you know, you look at people like Jeff Bezos, you look at people like um, Bill Gates, you know, you look at, you look at all these people who are doing all these innovative things, but it lines up with their passion. Their passion helped them change the world. And, you know, if you're just following the flow or going with the uh, curve or whatever, you know, how can you ever change the world? Because you're not passionate about it, you know? So that, that's one of the things that keeps me up because when, when your tombstone is laid up and you got that dash, um, do you want, do you, would you want people to say that, you know, this man, you know, he, he changed my life or he gave me, you know, you know, all this wisdom or whatever, or do you want to say, hey, the man went with the curve. He did that. He did that. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't that, that keeps me up at night because I, I want to find something I'm passionate about because you can't affect change just going with the flow. Okay. So I know, I know one of the things that you mentioned, mentioned in your questionnaire is that you want to be helpful. Is that one of the things that you're passionate about? So being helpful to me um, is is one of the things I'm being um, passionate about, and and I and, and it's in everything. I mean, if it's it's even, I just got my homeboy some Jordans. You know what I'm saying? Because I got a hook up, got a plug. So I mean, I, I hooked him up with that. So, um, but being helpful to me is also being a mentor. But being a mentor wherever you at, I want to make sure that if people need me, I'm available no matter where we're at. Now, it doesn't have to be in a classroom setting. We could be in the middle of Kohan chopping it up. And, 
you know, if if it's some advice I can give, you know, I'm gonna give it, you know, because yeah. each one teach one. Definitely, definitely. You mentioned one other thing that keeps you up at night. What's that? Uh, so another thing that keeps me up at night is that my father died in 2012, and you know, my first name is mine. That's my name, but my last name is his. And at this point in his life, he had been around the world. He had, you know, he was a captain in the Marines. He'd been around the world. He'd been named on patents. And, you know, I just wonder, am I doing enough? Am, am, am I doing enough to li- uphold and live up to his name? But that's the, the hard thing is I can't ask him because he ain't here. So, Yeah. And, and you thought he was a brick breaker. That's all I thought he did, breaking bricks. But I I think you, your availability to help people, I think that's going to speak a lot about, you know, you said that dash on your tombstone. You know, I I think that's huge. You're each one, teach one. Um, You know, and knowing you and knowing your dad, um, I, I, I think you're doing well. I think you're doing well. I may be a little biased, but I think you're doing well. All right, so... I know I know you're a reader. Tell us some of the some of the books that you're reading right now. So I'm reading uh Barracoon or Barracoon. It's about uh, the story of the last black cargo. So essentially, um in I think it was eighteen twenty, they outlawed bringing um Africans into the slave trade. Okay. Uh, so the only slaves you could have would be African Americans born in the United States. Well, um, in 1860, uh, the last the last known slave ship to bring natural Africans to the United States uh, was the Clotilda, which came into Alabama, into Alabama. And this book is about the Zora Neale Hurston actually wrote this book, and it's about her interviews with. Um, the one of the last known survivors of the Clotilda and his his experience from being a free African to being captured, brought across the passage, the Great Passage, being sold into slavery, and then being free, and then helping to establish a colony outside of Mobile, I think called Africatown. And so it was kind of all you know, he had literally the whole slave, ex- the whole American slave experience in one lifetime. And so it's a book on her, um, her interviews with him. And I'm, I'm, I'm about halfway through it. But also when I read, I read several different books. So I'm reading that. I'm rereading 1984 and Animal Farm and um, trying to get through uh, Between the World and Me by Tanahasi Coates. Okay. Okay. Uh, I know you got some books on deck. What what you got on deck? Okay, so on deck I got um, they came before Columbus, so it's uh, a book about the African American presence in America before slavery, before Christopher Columbus, and so um, I had been re- hearing a lot about this book before, and you know it's basically showing that. There were Afri- there were Africans here before Columbus. Columbus didn't discover America, you know. Of course, we all know that because there were uh, Native Americans here already. But you know, he wasn't the first. He wasn't the first to go across that that grass, that great and vast ocean. You know, sailing wasn't invented by Europeans. That's what history would want you to believe. But no, that's right. not true. Right. Um, got a couple other books in on Dick Circle. Um, Backlash. Uh, what happens when you talk about honestly about race in America? Okay. And then uh, surprise kill vanish. It's about that book's about um, CIA and paramilitary operations in in and around the world uh, that the United States sponsored. Yeah, I think I'm definitely uh, backlash and surprise kill vanish. Those are definitely going on my list. Definitely going on 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 my. I'm gonna put those in my on deck circle. All right. Music. Let's talk a little bit about music. What you listening to? 
All right, man. So I done listened to a couple of your episodes, and I know everybody on this, they on this gospel. They, you know, they they trying to do something. <laughs> hey, bro, that is not me. That is not me. That is not me. Okay, I, what you got my, for us? My ears are 90% ghetto. I may throw... I may throw some Big Luther because my mama say Little Luther can't sing, so you got to do Big Luther, but I am 90% breath. I am straight hardcore. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, what's crazy is that we're we're in a time now where you have literally second and third generation rap listeners in a household. That's how yeah. long rap has been around. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't like taking the aspect of like my dad would tell me all oh, music was better back in my day. Number I listen to everything. I listen to I listen to the young rappers, Lil Baby, the Baby. Um, I'm finna listen to Pop Smoke album that just came out, R.I.P. Um, T Grizzly, uh, of course Megan Thee Stallion. She always, you know, doing her thing. Then I listen to like some of these. They're not young rappers, but they're older rappers like J Cole, Creed. Uh huh. Um, ASAP Rocky, Drake, and then you know, man, always gotta have um the OGs. So like Jay Z, Outkast, Good and My, UGK, man, A Ball and JG, Rick Ross. I mean, I'm I'm all over it. The OGs. Listen, let let me tell you, nothing makes me more proud as a parent. I mean, I I know there are some other things that should make me really proud, but when I walk in the house one day. And my son is blasting my 19-year-old son. Well, he just made 19 today. He's blasting Southern Playalistic Cadillac music. Classic. Oh, man, Classic. when I tell you, I, I don't know if anything could make my heart more warm than that. I was, I, you know, it felt like I was, I'm, I'm raising this boy right. I'm raising this boy right. All right, podcast. You're on a podcast. Do you listen to podcasts? Yes. So, um... Going along the lines of me having ghetto ears. So I got this one podcast that I love. Did you miss me? It is two to three comedians. They call themselves the 96 Bulls. It's uh, okay. D-Lay, Billy Sorrells Jr. and his dude, uh, Damn Food. And all they do is tell true stories about their life and stuff that has happened to them. And when I tell you, it's hilarious. It is definitely not safe for work. Okay. okay. I mean, they're going in. Uh, one of the dudes is from Houston uh, in Mo City. So, I mean, he, man, his boy is wild. Wow. Okay. Wow. Um, uh, Code Switch. I mean, that that speaks yeah. in and over what that is. I listen um, to Code Switch. Your, your brother put me on one, Atlanta Monster. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Podcast by Wayne Williams. Uh, Ratchet and Respectable. My wife actually put me on that. Um, it's actually pretty decent. I mean, it's it's a lot of things going on. It's from a black female perspective, but it's actually pretty good. Um, for color nerds, I just found it, and they have not put an uh, a um a cast out in about two years, but it's still good. And okay. I strongly believe you cannot graduate from engineering school and not have some sort of nerd in you. So this is right yeah. up my alley. Okay. Um, Pop culture happy hour, and it's pretty much they they kind of talk about like different movies that came out, you know, their perspective on it. So I kind of listen okay. to that, and then um, I have to feed my brain sometimes. So very any any NPR podcast that kind of catch my eye, I, I'll listen to those. And I'm and I'm trying to get on that. Uh, I think it's what G just talked about at sixteen nineteen, or he posted uh-huh. about it on Facebook. So I'm I'm looking to uh, put that one into the rotation too. Okay, yeah, I, I've had a couple of couple of people mention that sixteen, nineteen podcast. Okay, all right, cool. We're gonna change. We're gonna change lanes again. We're gonna do something a uh, little rapid fire. Little ask you about four or five random questions, and then get your answers to them. All right, you ready? All right, let's do it. All right, if you could have a superpower, what would it be and why? Ah, uh, hey man, time time out right quick. <laughs> I'm gonna get back to it. But it's funny that you asked that question because when I'm um talking to people sometimes I ask them what's their superpower. And and what I mean by that is it's not not necessarily being invisible or whatever, but what do you do extremely well 
that uh, people would consider above average. So like for me, I tell people I can talk to just about anybody, like literally I can find something to talk to anybody about. And so okay. it's just funny that you asked me that question because <laughs> I ask people that all the time, actually. But if I, if I could have a superpower, it would be to be able to reach in my pocket and pull out the exact amount of money every time I need it. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I like that. Sir, that'll be uh, $19.75. Got it. On the count. Here we go. Oh, that's a good one. All right, here we go. Question number two. What is your favorite movie quote? Uh, I, I wish I could tell you what the movie is. And it makes no sense. But Pulp Fiction, when Samuel Jackson get ready to kill people and he reaching his gun and he start quoting that Bible scripture. Ah, I wish I knew what it was. But it kills me every time. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon you. Okay, okay, you ready? Third question, you ready? Question number three. What TV sitcom family would you be a member of? TV sitcom family. Yeah, that's a good one. That's that's a good one. Uh, ah. I, I, I feel like... Um, I feel like my life would dictate that I would be uh, a part of the Simpsons, but I'm probably going to go with, I, 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 I go with the Cosby's. And, and the reason why I say that is, is because take away Theo's dyslexia and give him color blindness. And I'm pretty sure that's me. Cause nobody really understood what I went through being colorblind. I, I literally almost failed art in junior high. No, 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 bro. I got a D in art in junior high. I got a D in art. Hey, and, listen. And my microbiology professor uh, tried to flunk me because I couldn't understand the stains. Listen, I'm I'm with you, man. I'm colorblind. I'm colorblind. I remember taking art in sixth grade, and the art teacher looking at me like this boy don't know his colors. Hey, listen, really? it's shades. They Pull this one. Yeah, they all look alike. They, they all look alike. I, bruh, when I tell you, when Kevin went to seventh grade to take art, he was he said he was freaking out because I struggled so bad. It, it went down a whole nother brother. And then <laughs> when, he, when, they, when they figured out that I was just colorblind, he was like, okay, this is easy. I was wondering why he was struggling. Yeah, man. I got a, D, right. I got a D in art. Wow. Wow. All right. What product? Would you refuse to promote? Man. Uh man, anything to do with hair growth, because it don't work, bro. It don't work. It don't work. It don't work. So, so are you telling us that you've tried them? No, I'm telling you that a a person that we know, an uncle of ours. Probably may have tried Rogaine when we were younger and got pissed off and threw it away because it didn't work. I ain't saying no names, but I'm just saying. Okay, okay. All right, last question. Last question in rapid fire. If you could add a person to Mount Rushmore, who would it be and why? Oh, man. I, I tell you what, I don't know his name, but whoever discovered the internet... Like he was just out there roaming free. <laughs> whoever discovered him that changed everything, he changed the game. That changed man the game, be, man. He needs to be on Mount Rushmore. Whoever whoever found the wild internet and corralled it and brought it into our houses, that needs to be that that guy needs to be up there. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. That that that's good, man. That's good. All right. This last segment is called You Didn't Ask. You didn't ask. So in this segment, you give a piece of unsolicited advice. Nobody has asked for this, but you're gonna give them to it in, you're gonna give it to them anyway. So what unsolicited advice would you like to share? Uh so one thing kind of piggybacking off of my dad growing up, um, gotta pay the cost to be the boss. So life is full of twists and turns and you're going to stumble and you're going to fall and that's okay. The only thing that is not okay is to stay down. So fall once, stand up twice. Fall once, stand up twice. You didn't ask. But there it is. That's good advice, man. Kyle Sykes, welcome to the network. I appreciate it. No problem.